Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Jennifer Jenkins. I'm a professor of German and European history at the University of Toronto in Canada, and it is my pleasure to open this first session. Um, just a program note, I actually work, I'm a historian, I work on German-Iranian relations, global history, and German foreign policy, and the bio in your program is unfortunately incorrect. Uh, please don't ask me any questions on old Icelandic because <laughs> I can't answer them. So there is a corrected uh, one that is available um, as a printout, um, so just as a program note. So to today's panel, post-war political frameworks, networks, and movements. And the signing of the armistice on November the 11th, 1918, and the end of the Great War was the culmination of one conflict and the start of many others. The war had powerfully mobilized populations. In the many political languages of the period after 1917, Bolshevism, Wilsonianism, Pan-Islamism, Pan-Asianism, and the many expressions of nationalism, these were all affected by the war, and they were all highly mobile. They posited different conceptions of popular and national sovereignty, and they drew competing maps of what could constitute a new international order. So in the, in the north of Iran, for example, the short-lived socialist Gilan Republic of 1920 confounds our political understandings. Was it Islamist, Bolshevik, nationalist? Was it all of the three or none of the above? Likewise, the anti-colonial, pan-Islamic, and nationalist political forces that emerged in, in Central Asia in the aftermath of the 1917 Russian revolutions. These were connected to the Ottoman Empire and to Istanbul. They took many different political shapes and expressions, and they had short lifespans. So this is just to say that this topic of political mobilization in the long end of the war is a huge and fascinating topic. Our two speakers on this topic today, I will introduce them briefly because you have a fuller bio in your program. Our first speaker is Radhika Desai. She is Professor of Political Studies and the Director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. And our second speaker, Chemal Adin, is Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he works on global intellectual history and international history, focusing on Asia and the Middle East. So first, if I could ask uh, Professor Desai, to come forward, and the title of her talk today is The First World War as a Crisis of the Imperial Order. Thank you very much, Jennifer, um, and thank you for all the people who spoke first and introduced this uh, conference so wonderfully. Slightly revised the title of my talk. Uh, it's the First World War as a Climax and Crisis of Imperialism. Um, and just a couple of uh, prefatory notes. Um, this is very much uh, a, a, a work in progress, and I look forward to listening to all of you during the next two, two days and uh, then revising it in light of those discussions. Um, and another is that uh, this is part of a larger project. Jennifer mentioned that I direct a very small uh, a research institute called the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba, and it's part of a larger project of trying to promote a, a fresher, better way of understanding uh, the, the, the world order and its evolution to date. 
Okay, so here goes. Um, the idea that the First World War did not end in some palpable way when the guns fell silent in 1918 is not new in international relations, though writers who propose this come largely from critical traditions. The realist uh, Edward Hallett Carr, was famous, uh, who famously linked the First and Second World Wars with his concept of the 20 years crisis, uh, was not without his Marxist influences. The left historian Arno Meyer, uh, went farther and deeper. For him, the outbreak of war in 1914 inaugurated a second 30 years crisis of European societies lasting to 1945. The crisis was as fundamental in reshaping them and their interstate relations as the earlier one that constituted Europe's modern states and interstate system. Maya was part of the historiographical movement insisting on the primat der Innen politique in explaining the causes and, of course, the course of the war and enlarge the history of interstate relations, hitherto thought of exclusively in terms of diplomatic history, um, to include the turbulent social history of the era. In this view, the First World War was as much about the profound internal crisis in the modernization of European societies as the 17th century 30 years crisis was about the birth pangs of capitalism itself and the constitution of its state system. Um, finally, for his part, Eric Hobsbawm saw 1914 as opening a short 20th century by incubating its signal event, the Russian Revolution. The century ended, according to Hobsbawm, with the end of the Soviet system and the antagonisms between capitalism and communism, which made the 20th century the age of extremes. These extensions of the First World War are not wrong, but I would like to propose another, arguably even more momentous one. Carr and Meyer remain firmly on the terrain of Europe, and while Hobsbawm extended the story eastward to cover Russia and the USSR, his, his Russian Revolution was a largely European event. In this paper, I want to argue that it was a link between European developments and those beyond, specifically in the Third World. For the First World War constituted a climacteric in the history of imperialism, a peak followed inevitably by decline. The idea that the intensified imperialism of the previous decades culminated uh, in the war is well known, if also contested. Um, it is also appreciated that the First World War unleashed anti-imperialism, which culminated in the decolonization of the post-war decades. It is perhaps less widely appreciated, for reasons I will go into, that the full fruits of these developments are ripening only now, a century later, as the world's economic center of gravity moves away from the West and, um, and towards formerly colonial and, uh, and uh, towards the formerly colonial and semi-colonial world for the first time in the history of capitalism. So this is a fairly momentous development. Independence brought policy autonomy to colonial and semi-colonial countries. Economic policy was no longer made in distant imperial capitals uh, in the interests of equally distant imperial capitalist classes, but domestically depending on the balance of class forces. It is true that the resulting development projects, uh, various national development projects, did not achieve the hope for results. On the one hand, the hopes were high, perhaps unrealistically so. 
Um, on the other, the mechanisms of imperialism also changed, going from a focus on the direct exploitation of colonies, which imperial powers no longer controlled, to one on developing their own national economies to retain the competitive edge in world markets and maintaining thereby structures of unequal exchange. And in addition, formal colonialism did not end the considerable power of the informal forms of imperial control, which also gave rise to conceptions of neocolonialism and a myriad attempts to theorize the nature of post-war imperialism, um, which focused chiefly on these rather than the mechanisms of the far more effective structures of unequal exchange. Um, that will, however, be a subject for a different paper. What matters to us now is that since decolonization took place, um, uh, uh, sorry, what matters to us now is that the development of the third world in the decades since decolonization took place against great odds uh, and with critical reversals along the way. It was nevertheless sufficiently strong in a sufficiently large number of countries, the BRICS and more broadly the emerging economies, to have led to the juncture where the end of Western supremacy and the shift of the world's economic center of gravity away from the West and towards formerly colonial countries, it is at least being contemplated. I would say I would date roughly the idea being proposed to the end of the 20th century when Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs proposed his idea of BRICS. Uh, however, at the present moment in time, we don't find this being widely recognized and talked about, uh, even though, uh, for example, at the end of the, uh, at the, in the middle of the, at the end of the Second World War and in the, in the 50s and 60s, the idea that the, that the decolonization had been a momentous event was quite widely shared. So at least one important historian, Jeffrey Baraclaw, uh, said that um, the revolt of the West was for him the defining characteristic of the 20th century. Um, so uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the importance of the third world was, of course, undergirded by, third, the, by the economic development and political assertion of the third world in the decades that followed the Second World War. By the 1970s, they had led to a situation of global fracture. Western attempts to preserve the inherited international division of labor notwithstanding, the West uh, uh, had entered stagnation, while the third world, the, while third world productive and coercive power advanced sufficiently to ensure U.S. defeat in Vietnam, to begin narrowing, just begin narrowing the gap in material prosperity between the formerly imperial and, 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 and third worlds, uh, and to the call for a new international economic order, uh, the, uh, to, to uh, various ambitious programs to undertake heavy industrialization with the practically free capital that became available in the 1970s and which the stagnating West was forced to export, uh, and more widely to a disruption of established trade and investment relations, uh, particularly as commodity producers demanded their due, led by OPEC. All this, of course, also contributed to a sense of international monetary and economic chaos after the dollar was forced off gold. Uh, in all this, the Third World was broadly at least supported by the existence of the Second World, the communist world. Uh, the, international the resulting international economic disorder was considered comparable to the 1930s. Therefore, until the 1970s, at least, the Third World was a major presence uh, in the world. However, since then, its centrality has rapidly 
um, uh, uh, faded. Um, <clears throat> during the neoliberal decades, the Washington consensus policies were imposed on a lot of third world countries, and many observers declared the project of development either in crisis or actually dead. Third world governments fell victim to authoritarianism, economic dislocation, and other uh, problems at an alarming rate. The per capita income gap between the first and third worlds began expanding, now steeply, with the dissolution of the USSR and the Eastern Bloc, the Third World also has since become a site of humanitarian intervention, I put that in quotation marks, against rogue states, also quotation marks, and failed states. Um, the general disdain to which the Third World is now subject has turned the term Third World, which, was once, which once represented hope, agency, uh, a rejection of established imperial uh, arrangements, to a general term of disdain uh, and contempt. Um, so this is uh, uh, so I'm going to now skip a lot of what I wanted to say because of uh, uh, time. But um, basically, I just want to, uh, uh, in this, point out that um, there were various other intellectual changes that reinforced the change I just mentioned, which is the uh, demotion of the third world from anything important to something that really didn't matter. Naturally, therefore, Western observers who were in, inculcated in this way of thinking were quite unprepared for the emergence of the BRICS and other emerging economies and their challenge to the West, which, uh, and they have participated in the mainstream attempt to dismiss this development. In order to understand it, therefore, neither mainstream nor left intellectual frameworks, and I have critiques of both, um, uh, help us. We need a new understanding of the modern capitalist world order and its key drivers, which reconnects uh, with the uh, 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 re sorry reconnects with those in which the role and political agency of third world forces were more central. Uh, according to it, and I'd call it geopolitical economy, the first world war is connected with the international developments that unfolded after it by more than just a couple of decades of idealist delusions, which Carr spoke of, uh, or a continuing social crisis that led to another world war, which Maya spoke of, or even by the birth of Soviet communism and the ensuing Cold War that followed the end of, second Cold, uh, followed the end of the Second World War hostilities. While the USSR and the Russian Revolution constitute a critical moment in this, um, it, it does so by looking south rather than west. So first, uh, uh, and I, I will keep this very brief, but basically uh, 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 I'm going to very briefly tell you about the broader perspective that I would like to, uh, to urge uh, before you. Uh, if the dominant social ideas are those of the ruling classes, then dominant ideas about the world order typically emanate from the most powerful countries, like the uh, 19th century British free, British free trade, which Friedrich List, for example, criticized, or late 20th century ideas of American hegemony and globalization, which I also consider among these ideologies. But if these were the ideologies, what were the realities that they were designed to dissimulate? Given capitalism's tendency towards surfeits of commodities and capital, inequalities and crises, states have always, uh, always been and remain very central in managing it. They manage these contradictions and, pro uh, and tendencies to crises by acting internationally and or domestically, depending on the relative costs and benefits they confront. 
It is this type of action that gives rise to the turbulent and state-centric dynamic of specifically capitalist international relations from its beginnings. And this has been termed by uh, various writers uh, across the political spectrum uh, or seen very similarly by various writers across the political spectrum, but it has the name uh, which Trotsky gave it, which is uneven and combined development. But uh, this is not an uh, alien or particularly extreme left-wing idea. Alexander Gershenko for example, a historian of the Soviet Union and also of Russian, uh, 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 Russian emigre uh, who taught at Harvard, brought it to the mainstream of uh, Western political discourse by talking about ideas of late development, the advantages of backwardness, and so on. Uh, my own interpretation of this set of ideas uh, can, be, uh, can be very briefly outlined. I will make a very long story short by just suggesting just uh, one thing and then maybe uh, other things can come up in the question and answer session. So basically the idea is that dominant countries seek to maintain their position of dominance, the unevenness of the world system that, uh, that benefits them, but through a variety of means and through various types of states' actions of which imperialism, formal or informal, is one. However, other nations do not suffer the subjugation and relegation uh, that to which they would be subject by this gladly. Those who seek to challenge them through combined or contender, those who can seek to challenge them through combined or contender development, hothousing industrial development by protecting and planning their economies. This can take capitalist forms, as the industrialization of the United States, Germany, and Japan did in the late 19th century, or it can take non-capitalist forms, as that of the USSR and China did in the 20th century. While combined development does not always succeed, the, the list uh, uh, history is full of a, uh, of a long list of failures. No catch-up development is possible without this. In short, therefore, in my way of understanding things, dominant states seek to establish and maintain complementarity between their economies and those that they dominate or seek to dominate, and contender nations seek to establish similarity between their own economies and those of other countries, similarity in terms of levels of industrial and technological development. Both imperialism and contender development involve a considerable state role, though the free market rhetoric that usually accompanies imperial strategies tends to dissimulate it, because the whole purpose of imperial strategies is to try to prevent potential contender challenges. Um, ha Jun Chang, uh, uh, important um, political economist in Cambridge, uh, talked about kicking away the ladder using an expression that Friedrich List uses in his System of National Economy. Though contender nations, therefore, by contrast, resist free markets in theory and in practice, directing capital domestically to ensure the success of state-led combined capitalist development or eliminating them altogether in communism. Capitalists of the dominant countries typically oppose combined development elsewhere, since it's even though they themselves often dominate from considerable state action. But they oppose it elsewhere since it restricts their own freedoms in those countries and poses a potential challenge to their dominance. In a, a book written back in 1977, Fred Bloch reminded us that that sort of development uh, is particularly also threatening because it can easily be seen to go over into some kind of socialism or social democracy.
So this is the understanding of, uh, uh, this is also, this is my understanding, but it's also the understanding that underlies the classical theories of imperialism that traced the causes of the First World War to competitive imperialism and were influential beyond the confines of Marxism. Uh, they remained influential right uh, through until, uh, uh, through the late, uh, through to the late uh, 20th centuries, but since then, in the neoliberal decades, they have tended to be ignored both by the mainstream as well as by Marxists. Recent work on the causes of the First World War has tended to shy away from larger structural explanations to focus on the minutiae of events. Even so, it is noteworthy that recent work has moved away from the usual blame game, which is to say in established particularly ang English discourse, the blame uh, usually resides. Uh, of course, this was also helped by the Fisher thesis and, uh, and so on, but nevertheless, the blame, uh, blame Germany game. Um, if, however, contrary to the Fisher thesis that the German government chose war, planned it in advance in the hope of breaking out of their European isolation and launching a bid to world power, many now see the outbreak of, a war, of war as a tragedy, not a crime, and, regard, uh, uh, and, and believe that the Germans were not the only imperialists and not the only ones to succumb to paranoia. I'm quoting Christopher Clark's work here. We are back to some sort of structural explanation of the war. And here Marxists have been and remain far in the intellectual lead. Uh, the origins of the First World War, Eric Hobsbawm opined, lay in the nature of a progressively deteriorating international situation, which increasingly escaped the control of governments. Clark does not differ greatly. This is many years later. Uh, the protagonists of 1914, as he famously observed, were sleepwalkers. Uh, 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 watchful but unseeing, haunted by dreams, yet blind to the reality of the horror they were about to bring to the world. That's, uh, that, these kind of structural explanations would therefore have to center around use, uh, uneven and combined developments, specifically that of the contender powers, the United States, Germany, and Japan, that challenged the industrial supremacy of Britain in a, after 1870 through various forms of state-led industrialization. As it happened, their rise coincided with the second industrial revolution with its high capital requirements and explosive growth of productive forces leading to the nationalization of capital, that's what Bukharin called it, and the emergence of finance capital, which Hilferding uh, 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 preferred the term finance capital, although it's important to remember that this should not be confused with the financialization we experience today. This is often confused in current literature. They are two very, very different things. Essentially, nationally organized blocks of capital competed ever more aggressively for raw materials, markets, and investment outlets. Such industrial competition at a time in history when enough weak state and stateless territories still existed to be controlled formally or informally by these industrializing powers, and when the advantages that a declining Britain was still drawing from her vast empire were plain for all to see, meant imperial competition. This, much, this is much the story that Hobsbawm tells, although he tells it without employing the term uneven and combined development. Competition between imperial powers and the, war, and the war it led to inevitably weakened their hold 
over the colonies, strengthened nationalist and socialist revolutionary forces, and gave them more options, uh, gave them more options and weakened the existing st international structure of power. The Russian Revolution was the first and at the time most important beneficiary. It was anti-imperialist as much as it was anti-capitalist. The Bolsheviks' chief worry in the early years was that imperial intervention could undo their fledgling revolution. Moreover, revolutions in Western Europe failed while nationalist forces across the colonial and semi-colonial world were strengthened as wartime colonial exactions ex uh, excited resentment. No wonder then that the uh, that, that Thirty Years' War closed at, as it had been opened with communist revolution against imperialism, this time the Chinese. The colonies that had already been energ energized by the Japanese defeat uh, in the Tsarist, uh, uh, sorry, the Japanese defeat of Tsarist Russia in 19, uh, 1905 and the, by the Bolshevik Revolution, its peace decree with, uh, uh, published the secret treaties, called for national self-determination of the colonies, condemned territorial ambitions, and forced Wilson to proclaim his considerably less radical 14 points uh, in response so that the U.S. could retain purchase in a radically altered situation. By the time the war ended, uh, nationalists could see that imperial powers, quote, could be defeated shamefully and dishonorably, unquote, and even victorious powers were, quote, patently too weak to restore their old positions, unquote. This is Hobsbawm again. However, the Versailles settlement restricted self-determination to the European successor states of the crumbling Austro-Hungarian Empire, disappointing nationalists in Asia in particular. Among the major states, only the USSR stood against a restabilized imperial order, even, uh, even though the US, USSR's own survival strategies required compromises with it, uh, well before Stalin's doctrine of socialism in one country appeared. And therefore, this limited often Soviet support for national and class struggles, sometimes even hindered them. For all that, however, there were bonds of solidarity between communism and nationalism. Unlike the Eurocentric Second International, Lenin had always been aware of the potential, for geo uh, potential geopolitical economic centrality of the colonized world and had divided the world into three parts, the imperial, the territories that were neither imperial nor colonized, and the colonial and semi-colonial world, anticipating the post-war distinction of the three worlds, the first world, the second world, and the third world. With the failure of revolution in Western Europe after the war, the Bolshevik leadership cultivated nationalist movements and their leaders. Emin Roy's argument that given Western working-class reformism, revolution in the West would, uh, would depend on that in the East, where peasants and workers would lead socialist revolutions, modified the official position. It did not change it entirely, but it modified it. It was now believed that imperialist gains made revolution in the West much harder. Communists should support only genuinely revolutionary bourgeois nationalist movements in the, in the third world, and in certain circumstances that backward countries could achieve communism directly, as Marx had also allowed in his later years. Nationalists and communists mingled and linked their anti-imperial orientations at gatherings such as the Con Congress of the Peoples of the East in 1920 and the 1927 Brussels Conference of the League Against Imperialism. 
um, including representatives from which uh, the League Against Imperialism conference included representatives from the Kuomintang, from the Indian National Congress, from Indonesia, from, uh, from uh, Southern Africa, and so on. The short-lived League inculcated a deeper appreciation of social issues among the professional middle class and bourgeois nationalist forces in many third world countries and made the Comintern much more attractive uh, than the Second International, even to bourgeois nationalists in many countries. I'm here quoting from uh, Nehru's uh, autobiography. Moreover, in the course of the 30 years crisis, communism itself became national. For the Bolsheviks, the national character of their revolution was a deviation from Second International internationalism. The Chinese, however, easily combined nationalism and communism and signified Marxism thoroughly. From here on, invariably national communist revolutions combined with nationalist movements in thwarting revolutions. The capitalist character of the newly independent countries in the post-Second World War period did not imply any easy accommodation with the U.S. or the West. Mass mobilization had been necessary for nationalist successes, and it gave the resulting uh, uh, regimes a social character, whether they were led by a bourgeoisie, as in India, or by intermediate regimes, or they were intermediate regimes based on intermediate classes, I'm using a conception that Kaletsky proposed, as in much of West Asia. Uh, the social content and requirements of the productive transformation of colonial and semi-colonial economies led these nationalist regimes to embark on some or the other version of combined development, ambitious state-led development uh, projects with or without socialist rhetoric. To long-standing ideas about infant industry protection and import substituting industrialization were added uh, the examples of Soviet industrialization and Chinese land reform. New theories and ideas also played their role. The famous Prebish Singer thesis warned about deteriorating terms of trade for third world primary commodities, and Paul Baran warned of the hierarchical international system transferring surplus from underdeveloped to developed countries, often via multinational corporations. Notwithstanding the disappointments of development in the 50s and 60s, and notwithstanding the far, far worse two lost decades of development in the 80s and 90s, by the end of the 20th century, the fruits of anti-imperialism were beginning to ripen. Despite Western powers and their institutions seeking to impose neoliberalism on, on much of the third world, important countries could either resist it, like China, adapt it, like India, or reject it after an initial debilitating subjection to it. One thinks particularly of Russia in the 1990s and Latin America in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. At various points in the neoliberal decades, one after another, key countries began to grow markedly faster than the West, where neoliberalism, rather than reviving productive economies and bringing Western countries out of the long downturn or long stagnation, which they had entered in the 1970s, uh, only yielded entropic financialized economies. By the early 21st century, it was clear that they would soon be weightier than the West in the world economy, and this expectation has not yet been belied. Indeed, the gap between these growth rates was only further widened by the recent Western financial and economic crisis, including the Eurozone crisis, and a multipolar world is increasingly being acknowledged in their wake. All this, I would argue, therefore, was rooted in the crisis of imperialism that was the First World War. 
That is why, and I'm nearly done, uh, a quarter century after the end of the USSR, uh, the dominant expectations to which that event gave rise of a peace dividend and of unipolarity have been belied, and instead we are witness to the emergence of a so-called second Cold War. The reasons are related. If instead of enjoying any peace dividend, we live in a new age of Western, uh, particularly U.S.-led aggression, it has to do with the inability of the dominant uh, uh, U.S.-led West to accept the rise of contender powers and its attempt, so far in vain, to use its military might to stall their rise. NATO has expanded instead of being dismantled, and whereas it never engaged in actual military activities before 1989, it has been more or less continuously exchanged, engaged militarily since. The U.S. has, uh, uh, ha the U.S., as all of us know all too well, also been engaged in wars more or less continuously since that time. The Gulf War, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and now perhaps also in Ukraine and the East China Sea. Um, in many ways, all of this recalls the previous multipolar moment of the decades leading up to, the up to 1914. In my book, Geopolitical Economy, I call uh, the period from 1870 to 1914 the world's first multipolar moment when the capitalism became multipolar after the long, but, but st long dominance of, of Britain ended. The First World War constituted a breakdown of the world order of, uh, uh, sorry, of the time, more or less directly because, late, because the late 19th century emergence of the first batch of contender powers, Germany, the United States, and Japan, to contest British supremacy and spread productive power more widely than hitherto. In the 21st century, we find ourselves at the cusp of another installment in the advance of multipolarity as the contender industrialization of the BRICS and emerging economies redistributes political, economic, financial, and military power, generating new tensions and challenges for international economic governance. Whether they portend peace or war, uh, sorry, whether they what what do they portend for peace and war and prosperity and economic breakdown in our time? These are questions we are left to answer. Thank you very much.